0: Everyone, welcome to another edition of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. Uh, very excited about today's guest and topic. I am talking with Dr. Robert Lustig. Uh, he has a very extensive resume, and I'm just going to summarize and kind of let him fill in the blanks. But he is a professor of pediatric endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He has become a leading public health authority. On the impact sugar has on diabetes and obesity and metabolic syndrome. Uh, He is a New York Times bestseller from a book called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity and Disease. Uh, And his most recent book, which is what we're going to talk about today is called Metabolical. Um, Gosh, I could go on and on. He has 125 peer-reviewed articles, 73 reviews. He uh, trains endocrine fellows. Um, he has been on multiple committees. And, and again, I'll let him fill in the blank. So just very honored to have him on the show. So Dr. Lustig, welcome.
1: Well, th- thanks very much for having me, Dr. Dennis. But to be honest with you, I'm not filling in any blanks. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, you're a seasoned veteran in this field. We'll, we'll leave it at that and, and very well respected in this field. So, so you wrote this book, Metabolical. It was a fantastic book, by the way. Uh, Thank you. you. know, I've, you know, this is what I do with you know, hosting this podcast. I read a lot of health and wellness books and longevity books. And a lot of times, you know, they just kind of say, you know, the same thing more or less. And uh, frankly, I sometimes get bored with them. And I loved your book. Like I took so many notes and I found myself as, as I was reading stuff saying, yes, exactly. You know, and so anyways, it, it just really got me excited. I appreciate
1: uh, that because I actually wrote it for doctors.
0: Okay. I could,
1: I could never tell my publisher that because <laughs> then yeah. they would never publish it. But in fact, I wrote it for doctors because doctors don't learn nutrition. Yeah, uh, absolutely. None yeah. of medical schools even have a nutrition curriculum. And those that do, the number of contact hours is 19.6 median, right? Yeah. You get 6,000 hours of training. Okay, and 19.6 of them are nutrition, except that nutrition could solve 75% of the medical problems in this country.
0: Absolutely.
1: So that's a pretty distinct dichotomy. And the thing is doctors have left it to dietitians and dietitians, to be honest with you, you know, they're married to the calorie. And yep. I wrote this book in part to try to drive the final silver stake through the heart of the calorie. Yeah, All yeah. Right, and unfortunately, that means driving the silver stake through the heart of ninety percent of the dietitians too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, you wrote a previous book about fat, and then what? So, tell the listeners just a little bit, maybe uh, a little bit more about your background, maybe that I didn't mention, and then just a little more about your motivation to to write this book, Metabolical. All
1: right. Well, so <clears throat> in two thousand thirteen, I wrote my first book, Fat Chance. And the reason I wrote Fat Chance was because the standard mantra from everyone, the doctors, the dietitians, the general public, the world is you are what you eat. Now, the person who was misquoted, Antoine Briat-Savarin, who wrote The Physiology of Taste in 1825, did not say that. What he said was, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are. That was right. Okay. But you are, what you eat is not right. It's not the same. Those are not uh, uh, synonymous. So I knew that was not true. I knew that metabolism was important because I had studied nutritional biochemistry in college. That was what I majored in. And then I went to medical school and they beat it out of me and none of my patients got better. And then when I started doing research and I realized that the problem was leptin and insulin, and it was pure biochemistry. And that when we solve the biochemistry, we solve the behavior, I realized that I needed to write a book. And so Fat Chance said, you are what you do with what you eat. That is metabolism is more important than calories. As it turns out, calories are actually detrimental to our thinking rather than helpful. I, I, I wanna make that clear. But in the eight years since Fat Chance was published, it became even more obvious that the food industry knew this a long time ago and they have deep-sixed it on purpose. My colleagues here at UCSF, Kristen Karnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz uncovered the treasure trove of documents from the sugar industry over the last 70 years and we basically know what they were thinking. We have They have exposed the dark underbelly of the food industry. By putting all of the science together with the politics and with the um, uh, changes in policy that have occurred over the course of the last 70 years, I came to realize that in 2013, I got it wrong. I said, you are what you do with what you eat. Really, it's You are what they did with what you eat, which is very different. And people need to understand that it's not what's in the food. It's what's been done to the food. What they did with what you eat that has caused this pandemic of chronic disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. These eight diseases are not Diseases. They are symptoms of a much more, shall we say, pernicious and egregious phenomenon, which I'll sum up in two words mitochondrial dysfunction. All of these diseases are because of defective mitochondria. Now, people want the pill. People want the medicine. How do you fix a mitochondria? Well, we've been trying to fix mitochondria for a long time. Guess what? We can't get there. There's no pill that will fix this problem. These diseases, and I put them in quotes, are not druggable. There's no drug that fixes any of them. They treat symptoms, sure. You know, so we have LDL lowering agents, we have oral hypoglycemics, we have, you know, um, osteoporosis agents, we have, you know, um, uh, all sorts of uh, diseases that basically nibble around the edges in terms of symptoms. We have antihypertensives, et cetera but ultimately they're not solving the problem of the mitochondria. And that is why our lifespan and our health span continue to decline, despite the fact that we have, quote, the best medicine in the world here in the United States. We don't, okay? Because we lost sight of what's actually important. All of those diseases I talked about before, none of them are druggable, they're all foodable. Food can act either as medicine, if it gets to the mitochondria or it can act as poison if it actually causes dysfunction of the mitochondria. So I wrote this book to ask the question, is processed food, food? That's a rhetorical question. Is processed food, food? Is Cheetos food? Now, food industry will tell you, of course it's food. You know, Um, most doctors probably say, well, if you like them, you know, and it's got calories. In fact, what is the definition of food? Here's the definition from Webster's. A substrate that can be used to uh, enhance the growth or energy burning of an organism. What if you put something in your mouth and it actually alters or inhibits that growth? What if you put something in the food that actually inhibits mitochondrial function and causes the cell not to be able to burn energy properly? Would you call that food? That's called poison. And that's what I show in the book is that ultra processed food, because it inhibits growth and because it inhibits mitochondrial function and ATP generation, ultra processed food is actually poison.
0: So you you kind of start off in the book with that and that we are being poisoned by processed foods. And you have an interesting definition of foods that are healthy. You say that foods that are healthy, number one, protect the liver. And number two, feed the gut. Those that do neither uh, are poison. Those that do only one are bad. So uh, expand on that. They're in the middle,
1: right? They're, 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 They're not healthy. They're not poison. They're in the middle. Example of that would be juice. So does juice protect the liver? You've taken the insoluble fiber out of the juice. You flood the liver with simple carbohydrate sugar, glucose, fructose, you overwhelm the liver's capacity to metabolize it. The liver has no choice but to take the excess, turn it into liver fat. That liver fat mucks up the workings of the liver and leads to hepatic insulin resistance. That generates hyperinsulinemia all over the body because the pancreas is trying to make the liver do its job. And so now hyperinsulinemia drives Cell proliferation, in other words, altered growth, and is you know the nidus for most chronic metabolic diseases is this phenomenon of insulin resistance. In addition, because of the fructose, the mitochondria can't work well, and that's one of the reasons why you generate the liver fat because the liver can't burn the fructose to completion. So you have basically turned what was a food, an orange, say into something that's quote poisonous because it doesn't protect the liver orange juice. Now, orange juice still has soluble fiber and soluble fiber has some metabolic benefits. It moves the food through the intestine faster. So you get the satiety signal sooner. That's a plus. In addition, soluble fiber can be, uh, can work, uh, be the substrate for the colonic bacteria to make short chain fatty acids which are anti-inflammatory and anti-insulin, which is good. So you're feeding the gut to some extent.
0: And so so, it
1: turns out juice, it turns out juice is not as good as an orange, but it's not as bad as a soda. And that's what the empiric data show.
0: And and so to use your example, uh, you're talking about like Cheetos or Doritos, whatever you said, uh, those are doing neither. Uh, they're not protecting right. the liver, they're not feeding the gut, Therefore, in your definition, they're they're poison to the body. That's right. Exactly right. Interesting. Okay. So um, let's get a little bit deeper in the book. So in part one, you have uh, it's titled Debunking Modern Medicine. <laughs> so uh, you talk about some insulin 101 and that uh, you mentioned that obesity is a red herring. Uh, you said, forget obesity, fix the metabolic problem. Talk about that.
1: So everyone thinks obesity is the problem. You know, Surgeon General tells us obesity is a problem. Uh, National Institutes of Health tell us obesity is a problem. Is it? Really? So if you actually look at the data, our country, 30% obese, 70% normal weight, BMI over 30, BMI under 30. 80% of the obese population Is metabolically ill. I don't argue that. That is absolutely true. 57 million fat sick people. Okay. But it turns out 20% of the obese population is not. They're metabolically healthy. We have a name for them, MHO. Metabolically healthy, obese. They'll live a completely normal life, die at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They're just carrying extra, you know, spare baggage around their behind, big butt fat, if you will. Okay. Cosmetically undesirable, but metabolically inert. They're not costing anybody anything. Conversely, turns out when you look at the normal weight population, BMI under 30, 70%, uh, sorry, sorry, I think 40% of those have the exact same metabolic defects as did the obese. Normal weight people get type two diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease too. And they get it for the exact same reason as the obese did because their mitochondria are poisoned, but their normal weight. When you do the math on 40% of 70% of the t- total, turns out there are more thin sick people than there are fat sick people. And it's the thin sick people telling the fat sick people that they're the problem. They're not, I mean, they're part of the problem, but the thin sick people are just as much of a problem, if not more. And when you do the math on the two together, the sick population accounts for more than 50% of the U S population. And that's what makes this a public health crisis. And if normal weight people get it too, how can it be about behavior? That looks more like exposure. That looks more like, cholera or influenza or tuberculosis or COVID-19 for that matter, where some people get it and some people don't potentially even in the same household. So this notion that it's about obesity has to go. It's about metabolic health. It's about metabolic dysfunction and normal weight. People get metabolic dysfunction too.
0: Yeah. I love that. Um, And I love also on the next point you talk about cholesterol and specifically LDL cholesterol. And again, you emphasize the real problem is metabolic dysfunction due to insulin resistance uh, and statins do nothing to fix that. And I've been, gosh, preaching that message for a couple of years now. So I I loved it when you uh, reiterated that.
1: Right. So I'm not for statins. I'm not against statins. Okay. I am for statins when they're used for the right reason. And that right reason is when you have familial hypercholesterolemia, and that is one in 500, okay? And if you have familial hypercholesterolemia, then you need a statin and you also need a low fat diet. And, you know, I'm one of them, I'm one of them, all right? My whole family had premature heart disease. My grandfather on one side died at 44. The other one had his first heart attack at 38, all right? My father had his MI at 61. Everyone in my family has heart disease. My sister has even higher cholesterol than I do. All right. So we know what's going on in our family. And so I've been on a statin for a long time for just that reason, because I'm on it for the right reason. Four out of five people in this country who are on a statin are on it for the wrong reason. They're on it because their LDL is a little high. Now, it turns out there are two LDLs. There's not one. There's two. One's called large buoyant or type A, the other one's called small dense or type B. Turns out the large buoyant is what dietary fat drives up. And it turns out the large buoyant is cardiovascularly irrelevant. It's the small dense, which is driven by carbohydrate and especially sugar, which is only 20% of the total LDL. That's the bad guy in the story. And it's driven by carbohydrate, not by fat. And guess what? When you give statins, you can lower the type A LDL but that's not the one that matters. The type B, which does matter, isn't affected. So we're giving statins for high LDLs, but we should be giving stat, but statins are only for high type A LDLs, not for high type B LDLs. So what do you do for high, high type B LDLs? Very simple. Get rid of the sugar.
0: And I- I think we look at cholesterol panels completely wrong. I think we should pay more attention to the triglyceride to HDL ratio, which back to your point is an indicator of metabolic health. That's uh, right. If you're, if Jerry
1: Reaven. Jerry yeah. Reaven, you know, who coined the term syndrome X originally in 1988. He was the one, you know, I mean, I had a lot of complaints about Jerry Reaven. I was not his fan, but he did one, say one thing that was right. And that is the triglyceride to HDL ratio is the poor man's measure of insulin sensitivity. Yep. That I do agree with. Yep. And the reason is because triglyceride is what comes out of the liver. All right. Triglyceride is what the liver, the, the, the sugar that gets turned into fat in the liver gets exported as triglyceride. So when you measure the triglyceride, you're figuring out what your liver is doing with the sugar, not what your liver is doing with the fat that's in the LDL. So what your liver is doing with the sugar and the HDL is actually the, um, remnant of when the, um, LDL has its, um, uh, fat offloaded. So it's basically telling you about the efficiency of what the liver's doing versus what the adipose tissue is doing. And so the higher that uh, uh ratio, okay, the more trouble the liver's having, and the more trouble the adipose tissue is having in snarfing up the lipid. And that's a sign of insulin resistance. So I give Jerry Revan that piece of credit. You know, he got that right. Um, and we should be looking at Tg to HDL. It turns out. LDL has a hazard risk ratio for heart disease of 1.3. Triglyceride has a hazard risk ratio for heart disease of 1.8. So 50% more important than LDL, but no one even looks at it.
0: Yeah, I yeah, know. It's crazy. Uh, so on to things like blood pressure and then also blood glucose, and you go on to say that once again, we're still on insulin, that uh, you know, that's more of an insulin problem uh specifically you know in in uh, blood glucose and diabetes which is your expertise uh and and you know that we look at that in, you know talking about type 2 diabetes that is type 1's a different animal but type 2 we look at it as a blood glucose problem rather than an insulin problem right we'll talk talk about that for a minute
1: so there's my favorite mouse <laughs> the mouse that basically turns medicine on its head the mouse that every doctor needs to learn and go back to medical school after they've learned it. So they can learn medicine properly. Okay. This is the mouse that basically roared. All right. So it's got a name it's called the Pederco mouse, P-O-D-I-R-K-O, Podirko, And that stands for glomerular podocyte insulin receptor knockout mouse. In other words, this is a, an engineered mouse by Ron Kahn at Joslin diabetes center to be missing the insulin receptor in the kidney, just in the kidney. Rest of the mouse is fine, normal wild type, but no insulin receptors in the kidney. This mouse has normal blood glucoses, totally normal. This animal has normal insulin levels. This animal has normal glucose excursion. This animal has normal glucose dynamics. This animal is not fat, but this animal has the worst diabetic nephropathy, renal disease, kidney disease on the planet. Now, how can a mouse that has normal glucose and normal glucose tolerance be have diabetic kidney disease? How is that possible? And the reason is because we've all thought that the reason for the kidney disease was the high glucose. It's not. It's the high insulin. the insulin not working on the kidney properly. That's what causes the kidney disease. And we as doctors, Dr. Dennis, I'm sure you know this, you would see a patient who had metabolic syndrome, who was obese in your clinic, who didn't yet have a high hemoglobin A1C, who did not yet show signs of glucose intolerance. Okay. So they couldn't possibly have glucose dependent kidney disease, but they still have urinary microalbuminuria. They're still spilling albumin in the urine standard. So the question is, how come the kidneys leaking albumin answer? Because the kidneys insulin resistant. That's not because of glucose. That's because of insulin. So it's the insulin. That's the bad guy in the story. The glucose is not good. The glucose can cause its own problems when it gets really high. I'm not arguing that. Of course, that's true. Okay. But insulin has to be dealt with too. And the problem with the American Diabetes Association is they think, well, if you just get the glucose down, everything will be fine. Yeah. Garbage. Yeah. You got to get the insulin down too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I'm, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Dr. Ben Bickman, yes. uh, but I have had him on my show and, and I love what he said you know, when we focus on the blood sugar and nothing else, that we go to the grave with great glycemic control because we did nothing to improve the insulin status. So.
1: Four different studies, okay? UKPDS, um, the uh, uh, ACCORD trial, the Advanced trial, and what's the last one? Forgotten the last one. Um, all showed you can intensively control the blood glucose, you can bring the hemoglobin A1C down and you will die just the same at the same time with normal glucose levels. And the reason is because you haven't done a thing for the insulin.
0: Yep. So I'm one of the very few doctors that I know in my area that check a fasting insulin level. And I check one all the time now uh, on just a general physical checkup. As you should. Um, but I, I only started doing that, I don't know, a couple of years ago when I started learning all this for myself, but it was not taught to me uh, in the medical journals. It was not taught to me in medical school or residency. Right. So when do you think this concept that we're talking about will get to the mainstream doctors or will it?
1: When, when doctors start reading metabolical, that's when. Uh-huh. Um, so here's the, here's, the, here's the problem, okay? The American Diabetes Association actually recommends against drawing a fasting insulin. So how come I'm sitting here telling you that you're doing the right thing and the American Diabetes Association, all of those guys, you know, all with, you know, with the big hats and uh, and the big heads too, um, are telling you you're doing the wrong thing. Who's right, me or them? Why do they say what they say? Don't draw fasting insulin. They say it for two reasons and both are wrong. So here's the first reason. They say the insulin assay is not standardized across laboratories. That is true. So you can send the same blood sample to 500 different laboratories and get 500 different answers. That is true. And that's why they say that you shouldn't draw it. I say that's garbage. And here's why it is true that different labs will give you different answers. The reason why they do is because the antibody used in the insulin assay is not standardized. And some of the uh, antibodies pick up pro-insulin as well as insulin. Now, insulin and pro-insulin are different molecules. I mean, pro-insulin has to be cleaved. By the enzyme in the pancreas, prohormone convertase 1, to get rid of this piece called C peptide. And now you've got a fully functional mature insulin. And mature insulin is very effective at clearing glucose, whereas proinsulin only has 5% of the capacity to do so. Now, when pancreases and beta cells are under stress and under duress because the blood glucose is high, it will release anything it's got into the bloodstream, not waiting for the enzyme to cleave the C-peptide out. And so a lot of patients with metabolic syndrome have hyper pro-insulinemia, high pro-insulin levels, which will get picked up in the insulin assay. And so they will have high insulins, even when what they really have is high pro-insulins. And so that is a problem across assays because they're not always measuring the same thing. Who cares? Who cares? If it's high, it means there's a problem. So that's issue number one with the ADA. Second issue. They say fasting insulin levels do not correlate with obesity. Therefore, why would you draw it? It's exactly why you have to draw fasting insulin because it doesn't correlate with obesity because fasting insulin and obesity have nothing to do with each other. Fasting insulin tells you about metabolic health, not about obesity, because obesity is for a whole bunch of different reasons, as we talked about, because they're a thin, you know, they're healthy, obese, and, you know, and they're a thin sick, all right? And the thin sick have high insulins, but they're not obese. And so, yes, that's right. Fasting insulin does not correlate with obesity. So that's exactly why you have to draw a fasting insulin to find that out to find out what the true metabolic health of the individual is. So on both counts, the ADA is wrong. And I would be very happy to debate them on the subject, but they don't ever want to be called out for this. So I'm calling them out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, just with you writing books like this and being a, you know, a public speaker, um, you know, how the organizations like the ADA, you know, the American Heart Association have reacted or did they react to you at all?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. The American Heart Association asked me to be a member of the Bay Area Board of Directors. Now, the reason they did that is because, as you know, the American Heart Association was the one who originally said saturated fat was bad. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, goes back a long way. They're, you know, on record as having done that. In 2003, my colleague across the Bay here at Children's Oakland Research Institute, wonderful guy, Ron Krause who ended up becoming the head of the nutrition committee, the AHA did the lipidology to show this large, buoyant and small dense LDL. And the fact that dietary fat raised the LDL, the, the, the large buoyant and carbohydrate raised the small dense and showed that it's the small dense. That's the problem. And it's the carbohydrate, not the saturated fat. That's the problem. It is. It took him 15 years to sort of inculcate that message into the AHA. And So now the AHA understands that sugar is a way bigger problem than saturated fat ever was. And that's why the AHA has you know, supported the sugar tax in many you know, communities. And they've slowly but surely been pulling away from the dietary fat hypothesis, because they realize they got it wrong and they know they got it wrong, but they can't admit it in public because then it destroys credibility. So what they're doing is they're kind of doing the walk, the, the slow walk back, you know, kind of like what politicians do. Gotcha. So, right. so the, a, the AHA, they got it, you know, they're, they're doing the, what they can for damage control, but they got it. And to their credit, they got it. And they asked me to help. So I'm a proponent of the AHA. I'm, I'm on their side. Yeah. Because, you know, anybody who gets it, I can support the ADA is a whole nother story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's good. At least they're, they're moving in the right direction. And, you know, so, so you talk about, uh, you say that dietitians have lost their mind and you mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, something about dietitians, I actually quit sending people to, to see dietitians, you know, used to, when I was in corporate medicine, I'm in a different style of practice now where I have much more time than the cash-based, uh, you know, practice. But, you know, when I was in corporate medicine and, you know, had five minutes to spend with people, uh, you know, and they're new onset diabetic, you know, I sent them to a dietitian. And, and of course the dietitians are putting them on a high carbohydrate diet. And I mean, finally, when I figured all this stuff out, I was like, yeah, they're not doing me any good. Uh, I had a great interview with a uh, believer. Her name was Michelle Hearn. She wrote a book called uh, the Dietician's dilemma. And she kind of figured all this stuff out mm-hmm. in the hospital and started asking questions about, Hey, why, you know, why are we giving carbohydrates to these people who have di- diabetes and then just giving them more insulin. And basically she's told, you know, don't ask questions. This is what we do. And so uh, it's kind of spurred her to, to start researching it herself. And she, she wrote a very good book, but anyway, so, so yeah, talk about the dietitians and the advice that they give.
1: Basically the dietitians are a, um, uh, married to calories, you know, that, that was their, uh, that was the thing that allowed the dietary, um, uh, profession to expand to, to even be formed in the first place. they basically uh, base all of their uh, uh, computations on this thing called the Atwater equation determined by Wilbur Atwater back in 1916. And what that said is that a gram of fat has nine calories per gram and a gram of protein has four calories per gram and a gram of carbohydrate has four calories per gram because this is what they release when you explode them in a bomb calorimeter. Well, we are not bomb calorimeters. We are physiologic beings with lots of different things, and each of those components are way more than their calories. The fats are not just calories; they're components of lipids, membranes, signaling molecules, um, you know, inflammatory uh, <laughs> molecules, etc. Proteins, you know, or muscle and, you know, enzymes and, you know, uh, uh, gap junctions and synapses and all sorts of, you know, and, and and precursors for neurotransmitters, et cetera. The carbohydrates are, you know, uh, uh, things that go on top of uh, uh, membranes for cell receptors or, and for proteins, you know, glycosylated proteins, et cetera. All of these things have different functions other than just their calories. And calories basically reduce it to something that is math. And dieticians can do math. And so dieticians have been holding on to the calorie as the basis of their entire profession since 1916. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. And it's been shown to be wrong in so many different ways from Sunday. It's not even funny. And I go through all the ways it's different, but the most important way that dieticians have gotten it wrong is that they've been giving the exact same advice for the last hundred years, eat less exercise more. And guess what? Not only has no one gotten better, but everyone's gotten sick. So any rational being, would say, what am I doing wrong? They would say, maybe I've got the hypothesis wrong because each patient is its own end of one experiment. All right. And if all of these patients are not doing well, maybe I've got the idea wrong. And Einstein's theory of insanity, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, the dietitians have been doing the same thing over and over again for a hundred years, and they haven't gotten a different result, but they're still doing it. Thus, according to Einstein, dietitians have lost their mind. They are insane. so you don't
0: you don't foresee that changing anytime soon.
1: Well, so uh, like Michelle Hearn, who figured it out for herself, about ten percent of the dietitians get it. They understand that this is not math. This is science. And you have to understand that different foodstuffs are metabolized in different ways and cause different effects, irrelevant and irrespective of its calories. Now, when dieticians understand that and practice that and do that, then they will be part of the solution to the problem. Right now, they are part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So not all dieticians are disasters, but a lot of them, I would even say most of them are. And there's an easy way to tell a, a good dietitian from a bad one is one question. You just have to ask them one question. Do you need sugar to live? It's a good question.
0: I mean, I know the answer, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. For, for your audience, you do not need sugar to live. Okay. You do not need sugar to live. Um, you need proteins. You need fats. You need vitamins, you need minerals, and you need water. You do not need carbohydrate. You do not need glucose, you do not need fructose. You need a blood glucose, that's true, but blood glucose is so important that if you don't consume it, your body will make it. The Inuit, the Rendili, the Tokelau, the uh, indigenous tribes, they eat meat and milk and blood and the Inuit, you know, the whale blubber, They, you know, they didn't have a place to grow a carbohydrate, right. right? They still had a blood glucose because their liver would turn fat and protein into glucose. It's a process called gluconeogenesis. So glucose, having a blood glucose is very important, but consuming that glucose is not. So the concept that you need sugar to live is just completely wrong.
0: Yeah. And I will say all those, uh, uh, cultures that you mentioned, um, have very little chronic disease as well.
1: That's right. <laughs> exactly right. Cause they have very low insulins. Yep.
0: Yep. Um, my next question, and I love this, uh, part of the book, because if, if, if I was taught this, you know, i maybe I was, and I forgot it, but you go into a little bit of the history of evidence-based medicine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and kind of why doctors are taught to practice the way that we practice. And like I said, I love that section because when I talk to other doctors and, and I practice a little differently now, I didn't used to, um, but they always come back to that. And I used to say that too when, when patients would question me or anybody would question me, I would say, Oh, I practice, you know, evidence based medicine. And now doctors yeah, are going to say, up, I, I practice evidence based medicine. Well, evidence based medicine you know, I've come to find is not all it's cracked up to be, but, but you talk about kind of how that got started. So explain that a little bit, if you will.
1: Well, so how do we know what we know? Yeah, it's the great question of epistemology and it has really come into its own as a question, you know, with uh, social media and, you know, disinformation on on the internet. Uh, How do we know what we know? All right. Well, we know it through various experimentation. That's how we know what we know right? And we build on theories, you know, and we basically wait till something's proven before we can build any further. And yeah, I'm all for that. But the question is, what level of proof do you need? What level of proof satisfies the criteria for proof? And there are different levels of proof. So at the bottom of the pyramid of hierarchy for proof is um, uh, expert opinion. (laughs) Next, ecological studies. Ecological studies are interesting, but by no means proof. Then comes correlation. Correlation is not proof. And the reason correlation is not proof is because just because something's correlated with something doesn't mean it's causative of something. Like for instance, ice cream consumption is associated with drownings. So your parents probably told you, don't go in the water after you've uh, eaten. I know mine did, and I hated them for it. All right. Turned out that was completely untrue. And the reason it occurred was because, yes, it is true. Ice cream consumption associates with drownings. So does ice cream cause drownings or do the survivors of a a drowning victim, you know, uh, you know, bury their heads in a, you know, banana split? You know, which is it? Reverse causation, intermediate causation. You don't know. Because correlation doesn't answer that question. Turns out when you eat ice cream, it's because it's hot. And when it's hot out, people swim. And when people swim, people drown. Okay. Had nothing to do with the ice cream. Okay. So so correlation is discovery. Oh, it's interesting. These two things are associated with each other. Wonder if they're causative. Let's figure out how to do a study to figure it out. Then you go up the hierarchical ladder a little further and you get to something called econometric analysis and econometric analysis takes into account natural history studies but the key to econometric studies is you have to have a time component so you're looking at the change in a disease process over time compared to the change in a potential instigating factor over time taking into account all the confounding variables This is the level of proof we have for tobacco and lung cancer. There's no study that says, okay, here we took a bunch of naive patients and we made them smoke for 50 years and look how many lung cancers they got compared to a group that we made sure didn't smoke for 50 years. You got data like that anywhere? Never going to get it either. But we know that tobacco causes lung cancer. And the reason we know it is because of the level of proof is an econometric analysis. The change in lung cancer over the change in time compared to the change in smoking over the change in time, taking all other things, including pollution, asthma, and you know, many and virtually every other disease into account. That's an econometric analysis. And that's the level of proof we have for sugar and diabetes. So we know that sugar causes diabetes because you have to satisfy four criteria, according to econometric analysis. These are the Bradford Hill criteria, um, famous you know by Austin Bradford Hill, who did this in 1960. You have to show uh, dose, more sugar, more diabetes. You have to show duration, longer sugar exposure, more diabetes. You have to show directionality. That is those places where sugar went up, more diabetes, those places where sugar went down, less diabetes. And finally, most importantly for causation, you have to show precedence. Something has to precede something else in order to be causative. Three years. Wherever sugar changes in the world, diabetes changes in the same direction three years later, up or down. So we have econometric proof of sugar causing diabetes. Now that's proof that rises to the level of proof and then of course we have randomized control trials but only 10% of what we know in medicine today are from randomized control trials the rest of it is either econometric analysis or just dumb luck
0: yeah interesting so you know you also talk a little bit about you know because most doctors they just they know how to give medicine you know you come in with whatever you know they're not treating any kind of underlying disease process by reversing the the high insulin levels or anything like that. they just give medicine. But you talk about how that was kind of ingrained in the medical institution from from early on. Um, Speak on that just briefly, if you would. So in
1: 1910, American medicine got turned on its head. Up to that point, we had a lot of, shall we say, uh, uh, witchcraft. Things like phrenology, and uh, ice baths, and all sorts of you know like weird stuff. And was hey, being don't, 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 don't don't knock ice
0: baths. I, I love oh. ice baths. I'm, ki- I'm, kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs>
1: kidding. Actually, red I, red I, red I, red I, red. I do a lot of
0: cold thermogenesis. My listeners right. but, know okay. but, but well, there's,
1: kidding. I mean, saunas. I mean, you know what they do in Finland is pretty cool. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, bottom line is that it was pretty much an unstandardized and unregulated uh, discipline. In 1910, a specific report was issued called the Flexner Report, and it basically took American medicine to task and basically paved the way for what is now called evidence-based medicine, which is basically drug therapy, pharmacologic therapy. Now, the Flexner Report was written by an education reformer by the name of Abraham Flexner, who happened to have a brother who was the president of the Rockefeller University, uh, at the time Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research in New York City, Simon Flexner, who knew John D. Rockefeller, obviously, because Rockefeller hired him for this position. Now Rockefeller was the original drug kingpin. Everybody knows him for Standard Oil, but they don't know him as a pharmaceutical titan. Rockefeller had a lot of issues but making money was his his forte. And he had a lot of oil and he had a lot of a byproduct of oil refining called coal tar. And he needed to figure out how to make money off this byproduct called coal tar. And it turns out that coal tar was very useful to people with skin diseases like eczema and psoriasis was even used in some cancers. It turns out it actually causes cancers, but at the time they didn't know that. And so um, so Rockefeller was very interested in pushing drug therapy, particularly cold heart therapy, as a method for basically opening up a second market for himself. And so he commissioned Abraham Flexner to write this report with the idea that he could get modern medicine, to adopt a pharmacotherapeutic approach so he could have an increased market for coal tar. And sure enough, doctors only learn drugs. They don't learn anything about nutrition. It's not even on the medical curriculum.
0: Yeah. That was what I was saying. I don't know if I had ever learned that or ever read that. Why
1: why would you learn that? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. It it was fascinating to me just, you know, reading that. I was like, huh. I mean, that makes sense, but I guess I just never really knew why we're taught the way that we're taught.
1: Well, you know, a big, big pharma underwrites, you know, the overwhelming majority of medical school education. So, like, why would you learn that?
0: Interesting. Um Well, uh, we we don't have time to go through all of these, but, uh, you talk about, and I'm just kind of moving on here, but, and and you mentioned it earlier about debunking chronic diseases. And, uh, you mentioned eight processes related to chronic diseases, and I'll just let you kind of pick a few uh, to hit the highlights here, but, uh, you talk about glycation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, which you mentioned insulin resistance, membrane, integrity, inflammation, epigenetics, and autophagy. So, um, just kind of pick a few of those and talk about how those are related to chronic disease.
1: I'll pick, I'll pick all eight at once. Okay. Okay. They all cause dysfunction of the mitochondria. Okay. So mitochondria are absolutely essential to cells because they're what generate the power that cells use to stay alive. And if your mitochondria aren't working, guess what? Your cells aren't working. Well, each of those subcellular pathologies that you just rattled off. Okay. Okay. Are what's going on underneath inside the cell that's leading to the cells getting sick. But there are ways to keep your cells from getting sick, and that's by keeping your mitochondria healthy. But drugs don't get to the mitochondria, food does. But food also, processed food, also gets to the mitochondria and inhibits mitochondrial function. So food is food, except what if? a food actually alters growth or inhibits growth in such a way that it causes disease. What if a food inhibits mitochondrial function so that you can't generate ATP? Is it food anymore? Well, it turns out that processed food because of it's causing insulin resistance alters the growth pattern of the cell to an extent that it actually causes damage and kills the cell, just like we talked about with the kidney. All right And sugar, which is the cause of the insulin resistance, inhibits three, count them, three separate mitochondrial enzymes that are necessary for appropriate ATP generation. And here they are, AMP kinase, ACAD-L, acyl-CoA, uh, sorry, acyl-co-A dehydrogenase, long chain, and finally CPT1 carnitine palmitoyl transferase one, which is needed to shuttle the carnitine in and out of the mitochondria to uh, uh, bring fatty acids in for oxidation. So, defects in all three of those lead to dysfunctional mitochondria. So, sugar, and thereby, by proxy, ultra processed food, which is where the sugar is hiding, is not a food, it's a poison.
0: Which that's a great segue uh, to the next part, which is nutrition, because probably what everybody wants to know is, okay, how do we eat? What's the healthiest way to eat? So is it as simple as saying eat real food? You know, I tell people a lot of Hmm. times eat food with one ingredient. Is it is it really that simple?
1: If a food has a label, it's a warning label, Hmm. because if a food, if nothing's been done to it, it doesn't need a label. So is there a label on a radish? Is there a label on a broccoli? Is there a label label on an apple? No, because nothing's been done to it. Now, you can buy apple slices in a bag at the grocery store, and you think it's the same as the apple, right? Almost. It's almost the same. It's been destemmed. It's been de-seeded. Okay. So does it say it on the package? Yes, it does. But it's an apple, right? Well, it's been processed, and only foods that have been processed. Get a label. So, the degree of processing is what this is about. So, let's. So, there's an apple, then there's apple slices, then there's apple sauce, and then finally, there's an apple pie. Each of those confer different health or metabolic benefits or detriments. So, the apple is healthy because it has fiber and relatively low sugar. The apple slices not too bad. They're pretty close to the apple. The apple sauce, what does glucose excursion look like when you consume apple sauce? Does it look like apples or apple juice? Probably more like juice. Like apple juice, right? Because the fiber has been removed, like we talked about before, the fiber matters. And finally, the apple pie. Bottom line, the degree of processing dictates the either the benefits or the detriments of any individual food stuff. The problem is you can't figure that out from the label. That's why the label is useless. And that's why no one's getting better.
0: So as a general rule, eat foods, eat real foods that don't have a label.
1: If you eat food that didn't have a label, you would be fine.
0: Okay. Now I want to take that to children. Um, because, and, and, you know, that's your forte, pediatric endocrinologist, uh, obviously kids eat terrible and, uh, and, and
1: we're guilty were of just,
0: My just have... came
1: out Three days ago that showed that the amount of ultra processed food consumed by kids went from 62% of their calories in 2011 to 67% of their calories in 2018. Oh, I believe it. And COVID-19 made it worse. So bottom line. We haven't solved this problem even remotely.
0: So how do we fix that? And I'm, I'm asking this question as as a doctor and as a parent, uh, because, you know, I eat pretty healthy, my wife eats healthy, but, uh, you know, my kids, especially the, you know, the younger one and eh, not so much. I mean, it's, no. it's tough with just the options that they have at school. And I mean, how do we, how do we fix that? problem?
1: Well, the fact is that the options at school are useless and gar- garbage and actually poisoning. And, you know you want to know why kids are doing so poorly in school. It's because the food in school is killing their brains. That's why. So I helped found an organization here in the Bay Area, a nonprofit called Eat Real, where we're getting real food into K- 12 schools all over the country. If you have interest, go, you know, you, I mean, talk to your school uh, district, talk to the people in charge. And if they want to, you know, find out about what we're doing and maybe we can help you in Oklahoma, we can do it. That's for kids. Now, how do you do it for the whole population? Because ultimately, you know, what the pregnant woman eats changes the metabolic uh, uh, efficiency of the fetus before the fetus is even out. And then that stays. That's the epigenetics. So we can't just change the kids' food. We have to change everybody's food. And you know that means the food industry has to go along. And of course, they don't want to. So how do you fix it? People ask me all the time, if you had a magic wand and you could do one thing, that would be the most effective thing to fix the problem. What would it be? And I have an easy answer for that. Get rid of the food subsidies. All the food subsidies out the window. There's no reason for any of them. And you know what? Libertarians know that fluctuating uh, uh, food prices distort the market. So, you know, these subsidies are basically undercutting everything else. So get rid of the subsidies and let the food find its appropriate market. And if you did that, people say, well, then the price of food would go up. Actually not. The Genie New Foundation at UC Berkeley did this exercise several years ago and showed that the only two items in the entire grocery store that would go up if you got rid of food subsidies would be corn and sugar. And that's exactly what we would want to go up to try to reduce effective availability. So my answer is get rid of the food subsidies. Problem is you as a parent can't do that, but you know what? Your state could. And many other states, if they band it together, they could. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So
1: this is, it becomes a collective argument, kind of like what we're dealing with with vaccination now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, the collective is, you know, more important than the individual. At some yeah. point, yeah. you have to decide that. You know, so bees, bees, know
0: this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so since you mentioned that, you you have a section uh, about nutrition and COVID and the coronavirus. So obviously we are spiking right now uh, again. Um, So what what would this virus impact or how would it be different uh, if everybody ate the way that you're talking about?
1: Right. So this is very important. You know, acute disease, okay, is made worse by chronic disease. And in fact, COVID is made worse by our food because of our insulin resistance. So let's look at the groups that die from COVID. Okay. The elderly, we understand that they die of everything. They die of the flu too. They die. Basically they don't have the immune function to be able to battle severe viruses. And I understand that and they die, but let's look at the other three demographics that die at higher rates due to COVID people of color, the obese, people with pre existing conditions. Those three. What do those three demographic groups have in common? Ultra processed food. People of color, the obese, people with pre existing conditions. Ultra processed food. So, how does ultra processed food make you die of COVID? And the answer is threefold. Number one, COVID is very smart. It's a very smart virus. And you can see it's super smart because it mutates into even more virulent strains as we're learning with Delta. And there's a Lambda coming and maybe worse yet. All right. So the virus has an injector point for each cell. And there's a receptor on each cell in your body. And it's called ACE2, ACE2, angiotensin converting enzyme two. This is the Receptor that the virus uses as its injector point to get the RNA in the virus into your cell to take it over. Okay, it's the trap door, if you will. So the more trap doors, the more chance that any cell will get infected. Turns out insulin increases the number of ACE2s because insulin is involved in water balance. So the higher your insulin, the more ACE2s. More ACE2s, the more chance any one COVID virus will find a way in. So you get a bigger bang for the buck, if you will, because your insulin's high. Well, what made your insulin high? Ultra processed food. Number two, uh, diabetes. So in addition to insulin, I mean, actually when your blood glucose goes high, turns out the blood glucose crystallizes around the edges of that ACE2 and holds it open, makes it even easier for the virus to inject its uh, its RNA and take it over. And number three, short chain fatty acids. So these are fatty acids that are made by your colonic bacteria in response to fiber. Fiber is the substrate. The fiber in your diet gets cleaved up into these short chain fatty acids, acetate, butyrate, propionate. And those have metabolic effects of their own. They suppress, The cytokine response, right? And they're anti insulin. So they're actually beneficial. They're helping you manage acute disease. But we have no fiber in our diet because we eat ultra processed food. So ultra processed food hurts us three ways, putting us at greater risk for dying from COVID. If people ate the, you know, real food for nine days, they would up their short-chain fatty acids, they would down their insulin, they would reduce their blood glucose, they would be healthier and thereby have better chance of surviving uh, being infected with COVID.
0: I think I've heard that before in my small circles. But well, you that... haven't
1: heard it from the CDC.
0: Oh, that's what it's just getting ready to ask. So we've been dealing with COVID, what, for a year and a half now. Why have we never heard that message? Not once have yeah, we heard why? About getting healthier.
1: Yeah, really? Why? So we actually, my, Eat Real, my nonprofit actually published a medical report last year, basically calling the CDC out and saying, you know, you you gave us a three-legged stool. You said masking, social distancing, and hand washing. You left out the food, people. Okay. Yeah. It's your fault. You left out the food.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, the question is how many people would actually take that to heart when they won't even wear a mask? Yeah. That's a different question.
0: I really and I've said this a lot that if a a year ago, even six months into this, if they would have used this platform to as motivation to get America healthier and, you know, talk about a lot of the things that you're saying, man, we could have not only saved a lot of lives, but just really transformed people. But they didn't. I mean, it's just all about, you know, vaccine and. Okay. Well, so I guess in, in summary, where I wrote down what you can do to protect yourself, basically you said the more ingredients, the more risk, maybe buy organic, if you can uh, buy from a farmer's market.
1: Organic doesn't necessarily answer the problem. Organic will solve some of it because you'll get rid of pesticides and things that are also poisoning your liver. That's good. But you know, you can have organic Oreos. That doesn't make them good.
0: Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So the main thing is Stopping the processed foods.
1: That's right.
0: Eating real foods.
1: Eating real food that has low sugar, high fiber. That's the key. Low sugar, high fiber. Real food has low sugar, high fiber. Processed food is high sugar, low fiber. High sugar for palatability, i.e., sales. Low fiber for shelf life, i.e., depreciation. Sales and depreciation, sales and depreciation. It's only about the money.
0: Well, okay. Um, well, this is great. Been a great conversation. Like I said, I I love the book, and so I encourage. Well, please,
1: uh, please tell all your doctor friends to read it. And maybe they'll be able to take
0: care of their patients better. Oh man, I, I love it. But but I'm gonna try to get the message out there. So hopefully, okay. if there's any listening, get this book. It's a really good book. Um, Metabolical. So uh, to get a hold of you, uh, your website is I'm
1: easy Robert, Robert Lustig. Lustig.
0: .com. com. OK, very good. Right. Uh, and the book and, is metabolical.com. And and I OK. And then I assume they can probably find that book on Amazon. That's probably where I got it from.
1: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, to be honest with you, I prefer if you buy it at a local bookstore because we have to support our local bookstores because bookstores are happiness. OK, but you learn at a bookstore. You don't learn on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. OK, um, you know, so, I mean, get the book however you can. Sure. You know, especially in COVID, you don't want to go out. I understand that. But, you know, we do need our bookstores and they're vanishing fast. Yeah. Yeah. Good point.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, uh, as we wrap up, I always ask my guests if they could give us one health tip that would make us healthier today. What would you say? I I think I know what you're going to say based on what we've been talking about. But what would you say to that? Oh, boy.
1: Uh, That I haven't said already. Um, Uh, Well,
0: it, it can be that. It can be whatever. So.
1: Well, all right. So what I what I would say, uh, I'm going to give you a um, a paradigm. It's in the book. Okay. There's a wasp buzzing around your attic. What are you going to do? You're going to kill the wasp, or you're going to find and destroy the wasp's nest. Okay. Treating the downstream effect does not solve a problem. Treating the cause solves the problem. We haven't been dealing with the cause of any of this. We've been dealing with the downstream effect. We've been dealing with the result. We've been dealing with the symptom. You don't get a symptom and then get sick. You get sick and then get a symptom. Okay. And the symptom doesn't go away till the disease goes away. What we've been doing is focusing on the symptoms, not on the disease. We have to treat the cause and we haven't been doing that. And we, and in fact, in medicine, we haven't been doing that for about the last 70 years. And sure. that's what evidence-based medicine gets you.
0: Well, I love it. Um, well, great message. Keep, keep preaching it. <laughs> and uh, my Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. uh, enjoy the book. Enjoy the conversations. You guys um, get the book Metabolical and uh, Dr. Lustig, appreciate your time and appreciate you guys listening. And we will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at drgreg at